And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, August 17th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, contractors take issue with gigantic new rules from the Labor Department. Plus, the FCC strengthens its approach to data privacy and security. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the National Security Agency is in the middle of an historic hiring surge. It needs to hire thousands in the coming years, and now it's considering flexible workplace options that used to be unthinkable for the highly secretive agency. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. Justin, what is the latest on NSA's big hiring push? Yeah, NSA Director General Paul Nakasone says the organization is in the middle of perhaps the largest growth in the agency's history. Earlier this year, it announced it had openings for more than 3,000 new employees. And Nakasone says a, quote-unquote, future-ready workforce initiative is going to help the NSA really address these recruitment and retention issues, a lot of the things that have stymied the intelligence community in the past, complex and lengthy processes for getting hired, as well as, you know, workplace flexibilities. That's what the NSA is looking to take on. Nakasone made what could be one of his last appearances in his current role at the Center for Strategic and International Studies last week. And he says the NSA is actually considering hybrid work options as, as well as some other flexibilities. How do we onboard our personal better? How do we take a look at well-being? How do we do hybrid work? This idea of perhaps some of it that, that we do doesn't always have to be done at a shift. Sure, sure. And then how do we take a look at our leadership development? Those are critical components of what the agency has to do. Or maybe how do you make your dining room table into a skiff or something like that for all these hybrid workers. But what are the basic factors driving this hiring and these flexibilities he's seeking simply that people don't want to come to places like Fort Meade anymore? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the big factors is just that a lot of the agency's workforce is, is aging out. Nakasone described the hiring surge as necessary to begin replacing an aging workforce at, at the NSA. He says they're probably going to have to replace half their civilian workforce over the next five years. Uh, that's because a lot of folks that had been hired in the late 80s are now becoming retirement eligible. So they're looking at this next generation of talent. And of course, a lot of those new hires have different workplace expectations than that previous generation. Now, Nakasone says he really thinks about workforce issues really all the time in his role at the top of the NSA. You know, we are obviously thought about, I think, day in and day out as an agency that has tremendous technology, fastest computers, uh, incredible ways upon which we make code and break code. But the true secret of what we do it comes back to our people. It's our talent that thinks through the most challenging issues and being able to address solutions for the future. Again, that's outgoing NSA Director Paul Nakasone. And what actually is the status of hybrid working across the intelligence community, Justin? There isn't a set policy, but officials have really been touting it. Top officials have really been touting it since the, the pandemic. You know, Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines has previously said that 
intelligence agencies have to find ways to make workplaces more flexible and appealing, whether that's through offering some telework for for certain positions some of the time or otherwise just making it a a better place to work in in general. The 2023 National Intelligence Strategy that just came out this week named recruiting, developing and retaining a a talented workforce, a top goal, of course. Uh, You know, during the pandemic, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency actually emerged as a leader in the intelligence community in terms of offering telework. Part of that is because some of the imagery that they're dealing with is increasingly unclassified. So it makes it a little bit easier when the data that you're working with is unclassified, but they're looking at it across the board at uh, in the intelligence community. You know, when that word hybrid means that some people come to work some of the time or some people are remote or whatever, it can mean whatever you want to apply to it. But let's presume then that I see employees are going to have to go to a skiff at least sometimes in their work week. What are the options out there for maintaining flexibility? Could I see agencies share skiffs, for example? Yeah, that's an idea that's been floating out there for quite some time, but it's really picked up steam again after post-pandemic. Uh, the Intelligence and National Security Alliance late last year put out a, a whole paper basically advocating for agencies to fund and certify shared skiffs to give basically the cleared workforce, more flexibility in terms of where they can work. If you work for the NSA, maybe you don't have to necessarily live next to Fort Meade if you have another skiff with the same level of security in another part of the country. This is something that the director of national intel office of the director of national intelligence has studied as well. Big issues include, uh, you know, funding this, these shared skiffs and, and actually just certifying that one agency's data can also live on the same network as another agency's data because there's so many different rules with that in the intelligence community. So it's something that's certainly being looked at, but it, No final decisions have been made at this point. I think it's a heavier lift maybe than it sounds like because the different components of the IC have not always shared much. And I'm not just talking about their data, but like a clearance for one may not be valid for another. That's been an issue, right? And also a vendor that is certified to do business with one IC component may not cut it at the NSA. In fact, people point to the NSA as the one that kind of holds up a lot of things. So this would be symptomatic of a larger idea of sharing and getting more streamlined. I think that's fair to say, you know, the security clearance reciprocity issue, as they call it, as as you referred to, has been a major sticking point for agencies for a long time. And it seems to be something that's not going to go away too, too easily. And then another issue is, of course, just sharing data and trusting, you know, someone to have vast access to different troves of data as we saw with with the Jack Teixeira case, that's something that that might be uh, a little harder to stomach for some agencies. They might be a little bit more wary of sharing that data more widely and getting it in front of more eyeballs. So there's a lot of different trust and security issues that have to be worked through. I guess by keeping separate baskets, a bad apple can spoil one basket, say the Air Force, but not the entire community if they have access across something like the IC. It's that issue of compartmentalization, but then also the whole thing after 9-11 was sharing more widely, right? So it seems to be this seesaw that goes back and forth every few years. And while we have you, Nakasone also talked about how the NSA is dealing with this whole generative AI technology question. And what did he have to say? Yeah, it was interesting. He, he says, you know, the NSA has used AI and machine learning generally for many years, but these generative models and large language models that have come along, 
He says, provide great opportunity, not just on the signals intelligence side of things, but also on the cybersecurity side of things, how they look at different disparate data sets and being able to uh, actually automate how they, they look at them, being able to, while keeping a human in the loop, using some of these technologies to help secure networks. This is something that uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency actually just kicked off a big project on. So there's some there's some uh, hope there that it could help the, the NSA in different ways. NSA is developing an AI roadmap right now. Nakasone talked about how the agency is looking to actually work with some of the big AI companies. How do we engage with a series of different key private sector companies to ensure that they understand, first of all, what we need, but also the idea that they're, they're targets and ensuring that they understand that being able to protect their intellectual property is critically important in the environment that we live today. And that's outgoing NSA Director General Paul Nakasone. And we've been talking to Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the FCC strengthens its approach to data privacy and security. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Federal Communications Commission has established a task force to deal with privacy and data protection, noting what it calls the era of always-on connectivity. Here with the details, the chief of the FCC's Enforcement Bureau, Loyan Egal. Mr. Egal, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be on. Let's begin with what this task force is actually going to do, and then I want to ask whose data that we're talking about. But tell us about the task force. Who's on it? Where do they come from? And what are you going to do? Yeah, so as uh, FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel announced in June, the task force, the Privacy and Data Protection Task Force, is a whole of FCC effort, an entire agency effort. It's led by the Enforcement Bureau, which, which I oversee, but it includes all of the various bureaus and offices that we have in the commission. And to run through some of those, those include the Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau, the Wireline Competition Bureau, the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau, the Space Bureau, the Media Bureau. And then we have other offices, such as the Office of the General Counsel, the Office of International Affairs, the Office of Engineering and Technology, and the Office of Economics and Analytics. So all of those different bureaus and offices come together to make up this task force. And with respect to data privacy, I presume you mean consumers' data that are using services where there is data collected. When someone's listening to a broadcast, there's no data involved because your radio is picking out something on the antenna. But cable and all of the streaming services, you've got kind of a chain of carriers and wireline providers and content providers, and they all have data on consumers? Is that context we're talking about? Yeah. So I think the one that probably resonates with most people are, are cellular phones. Your mobile phone, which, you know, I think Pew Research uh, Center put a stat out that said about 97% of Americans now have cellular phones with about 85% of those involving smartphones. So when you just think about the amount of information that you carry in your pocket with regards to when you access your email accounts, your bank accounts, uh, social media, when you talk on the phone, that's just a voluminous amount of data that's being collected on that platform. But as you also mentioned, there's data that's collected and services provided for uh, satellite services, as well as cable services, and, and the FCC regulates all of those. And with respect to, say, getting back to that cell phone data, there are a lot of offers of cell and data services 
But is it fair to say, fundamentally, there are only three or four basic carriers that actually operate the radio services that carry this service, and there are resellers that then sublet from Verizon or AT&T, and so the supply chain gets a little bit complicated in that manner. Yeah, so so not to get too technical, but to your point, there are a handful or even maybe a little less than a handful of major carriers that are what you call facilities-based providers, right? The, the, the carriers that own the networks and the hardware that all of our communications travel through. And on top of those networks, you have other companies that use those networks in business relationships with the, with the major carriers to provide your cellular service. So you may be subscribed to a specific cell phone provider, but that cell phone provider may be using another cell phone company's network. Right. So you've really got two companies then to deal with in terms of data and privacy. Correct. Now, as a consumer, your relationship is with the company that you signed on with. Uh, but to your point, the data that's traversing those networks uh, is is going beyond just the company that you're subscribed to. And so is the FCC with all of the supply chain and, again, people that you know provide content, they know what you're watching and all this kind of thing, concerned with how those companies protect that data from breaches or how they use it for ways that maybe they shouldn't, you know, the Facebook type of model where it turns out they were using data for reasons they shouldn't have, so far as we can tell, or, or both. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're looking at it holistically. We're looking at privacy. So what are the companies that are regulated by the FCC doing with the information that they have as a, as a result of the business relationship they have with you, the consumer? And, you know, back in 2020, the uh, FCC brought forth enforcement actions against the major then four carriers, Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, and then Sprint before the T-Mobile Sprint merger about how those companies were using location data, right? The, the information that, you know, shows where your phone is when you're using it, things of that nature. So, so that went to the privacy aspect of, of things. And that's an example of where we look at with regards to privacy. With regards to data protection, look at how do those companies that are regulated by the FCC protect that sensitive information. And then the third prong of it is cybersecurity, right? We look at the networks that that sensitive information is housed on to see are, how are they protecting the networks that protect that, that, ha- that house the sensitive data. So those are three separate disciplines that many times have significant overlap. We're speaking with Loyan Egal. He is chief of the Enforcement Bureau at the Federal Communications Commission. And the fact of this task force then presupposes there are statutes and regulations that apply to these supply chain participants in communications that you want to step up enforcement of, or you get the sense that somehow it needs to be heated up a little bit under them to make sure that everyone does what they're supposed to? You know, before I... I came into my position as the, as the chief of the Enforcement Bureau. Uh, I'd spent the last four years before that working in the uh, national security space at the Department of Justice in the interagency group known as Team Telecom. And in there, we were looking at, you know, potential risk brought on by foreign investment, foreign participation in the U.S. telecommunications sector. A lot of that, those same concerns come to this space, right? Even, even we look at... Um, you know, companies that might not have a significant foreign investment aspect to them, they still have global supply chains. In other words, they may use third-party vendors to provide services to you, the consumer. And in many, many instances, those are services that people want and like. 
Um, but what we look at is how are those companies that, that you've trusted with your information, with your sensitive data, how are they then making sure down the supply chain that the other companies are protecting that information? And so the task force is looking at that from a rulemaking perspective. Are there things that the commission can do? Because the FCC, in addition to do, having enforcement authorities, is a rulemaking agency. We're looking at public awareness, reaching out to people to let them know that these are areas that we're focused on. And then we're also looking at it from an enforcement standpoint. How can we enforce the rules and the statutes? For instance, there's what's known as the CPNI statute. That's the Customer Proprietary Network Information. And that is the information that telephone carriers collect about your account, right? The, what type of account do you have? How many lines? Where you're located? That information, there are specific statutes and regulations that, that address that. So we're looking at it holistically. And it sounds like there could be some fresh rulemaking at the end of the task force, or is there an endpoint to the task force? You know, I, I feel like uh, this is a uh, what you would call recession-proof uh, industry. Unfortunately, you know, just there's an old adage from a from a famous bank robber named Willie Sutton back in the 1930s, who was uh, reportedly asked why did he rob banks, and he said because that's where the money is. Fast forward 90 years later, you know, why are telecommunications and communication services companies, high value targets, because that's where the data is. And so I think we're going to continue to, to, to be working towards addressing that from a regulatory standpoint and an enforcement standpoint. And is this entirely an FCC affair or do you have other federal state agencies you might be working with that have impinging on this uh, whole topic? Yeah, we're working. We're using the model that we use for uh, the work that we've done on robocalls and robotext, where we entered into a number of memorandums of understanding with state attorney generals across the United States. And we're going to use that same model for the privacy and, and data protection task force. We're going to work with partners at the state attorneys general offices throughout the country to bring forth a state federal approach. We're also working with international partners, other regulators overseas who regulate these industries to understand what they're seeing and best practices. So uh, again, federal, state, local, international, we're hoping to work across the board. Loyan Egal is chief of the Enforcement Bureau at the Federal Communications Commission. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, an old medical product gets a modern makeover thanks to this USDA scientist. But first, construction contractors take issue with a gigantic new rule from the Labor Department. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Labor Department is nearly out with a final rule to update how the government determines wages it will allow in federal construction contracts and in federally assisted construction. The new rule is 812 pages long. It's not sitting well with the construction industry. Here with one reaction from the trade group Associated General Contractors of America, Claiborne Guy. Mr. Guy, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And you've looked at this rule. I guess it takes a long time to digest 812 pages of rulemaking. But this basically is to update how wages are determined under the Davis-Bacon Act dating back to the 1930s. Correct. This uh, prevailing wages, you know, you have to provide them on federal construction contracts or federally assisted construction projects. And they have not, this is the most comprehensive update that they've done since the 80s. 
And the main crux of it is updating how they determine what is truly called a prevailing or prevailing wage rate. Previously, they went by a 50% threshold to where they'd gather data on wage rates in certain areas. And then if it crossed the 50% threshold, then that was considered prevailing. Now they've lowered it to actually, even though this is an update, they're going back to pre-1983 rule to where the threshold was 30%. Interesting. So they're going to the pre-Reagan era, you might say. Correct. Before we get to some of the details, who determines the wage? Is it the contractors in bidding or is it the government that does the determination and tells you what they are? And then you bid on a contract. How does that all work in practice? The Department of Labor goes out and does a voluntary survey process to where they try to get construction contractors to submit what they pay in counties, certain counties, it's typically county by county. And then what they do is they take that back, figures it crosses the threshold to what is prevailing, and then they publish it. And so, again, county by county where the work done is the wage rates are set by the DOL. And then the procurement agencies are supposed to have those in the bid documents and actually the final contracts as well. So the contractors, one, can set the proper bids with the assumed labor costs and then in the end pay the proper wages. So you need that information to make the bid and that in theory puts everybody on the same footing then that would bid in terms of what they're going to pay labor for that contract. Yes, in theory, but uh, many times those wage rates are severely out of date as well as incorrect or missing. So uh, there's still a lot of ambiguity out there when uh, contractors are going through the bidding process. And what's the practical effect of 30% of the wages being paid in an area versus 50%? Because, I mean, I'll just put it out there, this administration is trying to favor union labor in word and deed pretty much every time they mention something. And so is this to make sure that union construction wages get followed in more places than they do now, do you think? Yes. In in essence, it is going to make it easier for them to use collective bargaining agreement rates to set the wage rates because, again, it's a voluntary survey process, but the unions are more organized. And so they have all their wage rates right there in the CBA. They can submit the CBA, and therefore it's easy for the DOL to just pick those rates. And if that's the situation, then what can contractors compete on if everyone's paying the same wages and it takes the same amount of labor to erect a steel structure that's 12 stories by a block or something, whatever. How do you compete? What other cost elements can you compete on? Correct. Uh, It's difficult to compete when you can't really reduce material prices. So uh, also to add on top of it, we've got a historic labor kind of crisis right now. So it's hard to even pay those rates currently. Just to find the people, in other words. Mm-hmm, correct. And, you know, I look at the cranes all over the Washington, D.C. area and in northern Virginia. I imagine there's lots of cranes. In fact, sometimes in New York, they topple over. But what is construction labor per hour generally now in high cost areas where there is a high concentration of union labor? It's extremely high. I'd have to go back to the BLS data that has it out there. But, you know, I think like the average is way above, you know, minimum wage rates, et cetera, uh, and even CBAs. There's a crisis or workforce crisis. Contractors can't keep up. They can't get people into the industry. So they're just the only way they can attack it is with higher wage rates. Right. And it is difficult work outside 
manual strength required. I mean, it's not exactly office work. No, you got to incentivize them to do that kind of work. Sure. We're speaking with Claiborne Guy. He is Director of Employment Policy and Practices at the Associated General Contractors of America. And tell us about the rulemaking. Did you weigh in on it? Did you comment and so forth? And what's the process next? Because it hasn't officially been published. As you mentioned, it's a massive rule. Uh, it's uh, you know close to 800 pages. Uh, it's the most comprehensive update that the DOL has done in 40 years. They went out with a proposal first. Actually, they went out for industry and in, in public input prior to the proposed rulemaking, which we participated heavily in. We worked with Wage and Hour uh, to submit uh, suggestions. And then when the proposed rule came out, we submitted an extensive comment letter with our uh, thoughts, our very uh, you know deep thoughts on what should be in Davis-Bacon reform, because we've been looking at this for decades now. They came out with the final rule. It was not officially published, so that's when it becomes real. Instead, the DOL released the rule, and then the vice president made the announcement last week about it, and they plan to publish it on the 23rd. Once that is published, it will have a 60-day effective rate. Uh, So that means that I think it's October 23rd is when contractors will have to be fully up to speed and ready to comply with all the new changes and wrinkles in it, as well as procurement agencies that are going to need to be ready to uh, put this into contracts and kind of help guide contractors along, especially during the bidding process and when the projects go into effect. Again, this is just for new contracts, new projects, new or renewed projects. But uh, again, that 60-day date is looming. And in the industry, do the large contractors, the national contractors, the names you see on all these cranes, you see the same names in city after city, do they tend to be more unionized than small contractors or, say, disadvantaged minority-owned contractors? Yes, because they do projects all over the country. So if you think about it, they do work in union and non-union areas. They have the uh, resources to do that. Right. So they could be union in one city, but if they're doing something out in the hinterlands, say building a data center or something, that could be non-union construction labor. Yes. And the small companies, do they tend to be unionized by location or do they tend to just not be as unionized in general as the large guys? I'd say they tend to be, again, location by location. But yes, I'd say they tend to be less unionized, the smaller ones. And do you feel this rule, do you predict that this rule extends the geographical footprint of where contractors would need to use union labor? Yes, yes, because they especially have reduced it to the 30% threshold for setting the prevailing wage is more than likely going to lean on CBAs, collective bargaining agreements, to set those union rates especially in the rural areas, because that's where they have a a really hard time setting prevailing wages because of lack of participation in the surveys. Right. So I guess what I'm getting at is, could this favor the large contracting firms over the small ones in terms of winning contracts, do you think? Yes. Yes. And there's also another wrinkle in it to where uh, in the rural areas to where they have a difficulty setting the rates, the DOL in this rule is giving themselves permission to use urban rates uh, when they don't have enough data. So obviously, when you think about that, it's going to use urban rates in rural areas. It's going to favor the larger contractors that can bring their workers in from those urban areas. So if a state then can convince the government to fund a bridge under the infrastructure bill, for example, that is somewhere out in the country that's covering a river gorge, and that bridge was first put in in 1930, and it's time to replace it, there's lots of bridges like that. There is no city nearby, then 
there's no prevailing wage if, if that's the only construction project in a 40-mile radius. I'm making these numbers up. But then if a city is 60 miles away or 100 miles away, it could be that that's the prevailing wage that would apply to that remote bridge. Yes, that's what the Department of Labor has given themselves the ability to do. And as you can see, it could impact the ability to bring people in. They would have to bring them in from those urban areas. It would affect the local workers, the local supply. Right. So if you could find local workers, then that would be good for them. Sure. If you could. But that's the difficulty we're having right now is finding the workers. And they tend to go to where the work is. Right. So if the work is in the cities, then what do contractors do out in the country? Do they bring people in and house them or what? How does that work? They typically bring them in and uh, they don't specifically house them. They usually uh, use per diems to kind of pay for their housing uh, in, in kind of it's also utilization to get them to those areas. Yeah, again, this is what you're we're tackling the uh, workforce shortage with more and more money. Yeah, well, it sounds like a good place to open a Motel 6 in a bar with a swinging <laughs> pair of doors. <laughs> oh, yeah. Claiborne Guy is Director of Employment Policy and Practices at the Associated General Contractors of America. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the rule and the AGC reaction at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, an old medical product gets a modern makeover thanks to this USDA scientist. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Ever get a cut and used cotton gauze to wipe it up? Cotton gauze is just cotton gauze, right? Well, not to my next guest. He developed a new cotton fabric that has proven more effective in trauma care and other medical requirements than the traditional ones. In fact, his invention is the first new medical gauze in 50 years. Vince Edwards is a chemist with the Agricultural Research Service and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. He joins me now. Dr. Edwards, good to have you with us. Well, thank you, Tom. Tell us about your work. You don't ordinarily think of the Agricultural Research Service as coming up with medical solutions, but to tell us about your work here. Yes, this started about a quarter of a century ago in the late 90s, and I joined a part of the USDA's Agricultural Research Service in New Orleans, Southern Regional Research Center. And in the mid-90s, following some very fruitful work that was established by several generations of cotton textile chemists, I entered into the Cotton Chemistry Utilization Unit after having a background in pharmaceutical and gene transfer research. And it was at that time that when I entered into the lab, there was an open-mindedness about a scientist applying themselves, as is there still is today, to creative ideas. And my new boss then said, here's your lab, go to it. And first impulse was to take cotton and apply wound healing concepts to cotton. Doing that involves eventually becoming a collaborator with wound healing scientists and then on into the future, fast forwarding, uh, working intimately with cotton farmers and manufacturers and marketing individuals to eventually bring products to market for actually both chronic wound care as well as trauma care. 
Sure. And what is it about cotton? What does the newest gauzes and fabrics do that the old ones could not do? And how do you change cotton? It seems like such a basic commodity that's been around forever. Well, you know, historically, cotton has played a role in this country's history. Interestingly enough, the type of cotton we developed here is not all that new to the scene. It just appears to be, especially when we talk about the trauma care dressings. We employed a type of unbleached cotton in developing those, and that form of cotton actually played an important role in times of battle in the American Civil War. During that period, the production of cotton dressing derivatives, which were referred to as Sharpie, was a national effort. But we developed cotton dressings, fast-forwarding then to modern design principles, using de novo design that implies starting at a molecular level about what is known about the composition of the fiber. And the cotton fiber is very rich in molecular properties that lend itself to new designs for wound care. So that's sort of how we got into the design principles of some of these types of dressings. And right now, the dressing that you have developed is being used by the Marine Corps, correct? Yes. They're very interested in developing this concept further with the idea of applying it to prolonged field care. And so what we developed here was a type of bleeding control dressing uh, that is now used by first responders and available for the armed forces for their use in trauma. And the Marine Corps, along with the Defense Health Agency, has a great interest in developing domestic base products that will serve soldiers in the battlefield. And one area is prolonged field care, and this is in austere and remote parts of the world, such as Afghanistan, where uh, soldiers cannot be evacuated in a 24-hour framework, and you need a dressing that not only staunches bleeding, controls hemorrhages, but also prevents infection. And so taking that another step forward, that's how we're working with, you know, our brother agencies, the Defense Health Agency, as well as the uh, United States Marine Corps. We're speaking with Dr. Vince Edwards. He's a research chemist at the Agricultural Research Service and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And in order to get these qualities of infection control and greater absorption and so forth, is the gauze treated chemically, or is it somehow in the composition of the, the way the molecules line up when it's spun into this particular fabric? Right. Well, Tom, we are able to use the natural properties of cotton combined with other fibers to produce what we call procoagulant activity. And using the the principles of de novo design, we have what we call a three-point triangular approach. And this includes allowing the fiber to promote clotting through both properties of the fabric as well as you alluded to uh, components, molecular components in the fiber. And then studying what makes these properties come together as a blood contacting surface to initiate clotting. And actually, this has been studied by other scientists and other organizations 
for some time uh, in the context of bringing dressings for severe hemorrhage control to the battlefield, and, and that all started as a result of some of the things that happened in the Somalia crisis when the Marine Corps was involved there. And it was clear from some of the injuries uh, and trauma in, in that engagement that there was needed a severe hemorrhage control type dressing. And so uh, we're not the first to work on these types of dressings. Sure. And I guess my other question is, how do you test these new developments in fabrics? Well, we employ a device called thromboelastography in our lab. And this is an instrument that's used in hospitals to measure clotting. And scientists have adapted it to measuring the what we call hemostatic properties of different types of biomaterials. And so we adapted this to measuring cotton fabric's ability to initiate clotting. And so over a period of years, we developed some insights as to how to both use this instrument and design fabrics so that we could discern different properties in the fabrics that would initiate clotting. And so that was really the instrument that we first discovered the ability of unbleached cotton to promote clotting. Interesting. Does it ever surprise you that, you know, thousands of years after, you know, the Egyptians discovered cotton and so forth, there's still more to be learned about this commodity? Oh, definitely. Yes. Cotton has many interesting properties that lend itself to new discovery. Certainly, our center is known for some of those as well. American Chemical Society Historical Landmark awarded our center for its discovery of flame retardant and permanent press cotton going back into the late 50s, early 60s when keen cotton was threatened by synthetic fibers. And then during World War II, a cotton textile chemist by the name of Dr. Charles Goldwaith invented stretch cotton here at our center. It's sort of a household thing. It has been for years, but before stretch cotton, rubber was used in cotton to make the stretch occur. They used to call steel the miracle metal. Maybe we should call cotton the miracle fabric. That's right. It's certainly something that we continue to uh, develop new ideas, and we are in the process of working with the Marine Corps and other organizations to develop a family of dressings that addresses not only uh, trauma care, but burn wound care, and using other components of the cotton fiber, uh, something called nanocellulose uh, that we can extract from cotton is another avenue that opens up new potential applications. All right. Dr. Vince Edwards is a research chemist with the Agricultural Research Service and a finalist in this year's Service to America Metals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Tom, for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com together with all of our Sammy's interviews at slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Federal News Network will host a special panel discussion with members of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and other federal officials on Monday, August 21st at noon in commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Join us in person at EEOC headquarters. Be sure to register at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
The Congressional Commission, tasked with figuring out how to reform DOD's decades-old planning and budgeting system, is out with its interim report. The panel says it's been mainly in listening mode so far, and we should expect a more comprehensive set of recommendations next spring. But the commission says DOD and Congress need to get started on at least some of the reforms right now because they'll take years to implement. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has been following the PPBE reform conversation. He joins me now with the latest. And the interim report looked as if they're not really ready to pull PPBE out by the roots, correct? Yeah, I think that's definitely true, at least for sure as, as at this interim stage, Tom, because they, as you said, they have been in listening mode up until this point, not just listening, but a lot of study, too. They've engaged FFRDCs to help study the PPBE process as it stands now, what some of the potential problems are, as well as doing a lot of interviews, not just with folks inside DOD, but also, I think, critically on Capitol Hill, because this is one of those rare cases where, you know, this expert commission is being tasked with making uh, recommendations that are going to impact not just how an executive agency handles things internally, but the relationship between that executive agency and Congress. Both things have to happen at the same time in order for any meaningful progress to be made here, which is one of the huge challenges in this process. And it's kind of funny in the sense that everyone affected, including members of Congress, feel that it needs reform. So it's not as if they were studying something cold to see if it needed reform. And everyone, I think, had kind of a sense of what the reforms would need to be, what areas such as year of execution, flexibility, the ability to reprogram money more easily at larger quantities, this kind of thing. And so it's not surprising. And yet here they are, you know, with the interim report saying, well, Let's get started. And those things you just mentioned, I mean, there are obviously a balance of equities there, right? I mean, DOD is always going to say, give us more flexibility in the year of execution. Give us more ability to do reprogramming. Congress, on the other hand, is very wary of giving up control, not just of where the dollars go, but the kinds of information it gets. And that's one of the very tricky balances that's going to have to be struck here. And I'll just offer one one example from the commission's interim report on one of the things that they need to get started on now, which is consolidating some of the program elements that are in the DOD budget every year. There are thousands and thousands of thousands that have accreted over time into the DOD budget. One of my favorite factoids that I've I've heard about the, through, throughout this entire process is each each page of the DOD budget represents about $30 million in spending. So there's a lot of pages in the thing. That's because there are so many discrete line items. And once money is appropriated into one of those line items, they are very, very difficult to change because they are so small. They are so discrete. You need to do a reprogramming for each one. You only have a certain threshold below which you can do that reprogramming internally before you have to go to Capitol Hill to get permission to do that. So one of the recommendations, and it's not at all surprising because we've heard the same thing from outside groups for years, is start consolidating those program elements, those thousands of program elements, into broader portfolio areas within which DOD would have more ability to move money around in the year of execution. Now, the trade-off that is going to have to happen with that, I think the commission recognizes, is that Congress is going to need to have more information about DOD spending plans and how it is executing those funds in the year of execution. That does not work with the way DOD submits the budget every year right now, which is all at once on paper in February or March of every year along with the rest of the president's budget. And then really nothing gets transmitted to Congress for the rest of the year. That's a huge problem because one of the reasons it's a problem is 
that information the day it hits Capitol Hill is already very, very stale because that planning process has taken the preceding two years to draw up all those individual pieces of paper where they before they land with a thud up there on Capitol Hill. So one of the one of the really key things the commission's looking at here is more ongoing electronic sharing of budget information in real time in the year of execution so that you're not just looking at a paper document that's generated uh, based on information that came from a year or two earlier. Yeah, I'm chuckling thinking of the time Jimmy Carter would take the budget up to the upstairs in the White House and purport to try to read the darn thing with a sharp pencil. And I think that lasted about a month before he realized it's not possible for anyone to, least of all the president, to read it all. And you have reported a lot about the color of money and the need to sort all of that out. That's actually a different consolidation issue. The, the, the consolidation issue I was just talking about was the individual program elements that describe different portions of the DOD budget, different programs. For example, there was a time in which there was a single line item for all Navy shipbuilding back in the day when PPBE was first created. That obviously no longer exists. There are separate line items for each individual component of each individual ship class. And at some point, that just becomes un- unmanageable. And I think the commission recognizes that. So maybe hulls here propulsion here and weapon systems there. Sure. I mean, that's that's one potential reasonable example. But the commission says that process is going to take years all by itself because it needs to be done thoughtfully in kind of year-by-year increments to get congressional buy-in um, to make sure that Congress is going to be willing to appropriate dollars in that way. Because DOD can propose consolidated line items all at once. In the At the end of the day, Congress is free to break it all back open again and put it back in the old format. And in fact, that is exactly what has happened happened in some of the past few years. The Navy and Air Force in particular tried just consolidating some things on their own, submitting a budget with those consolidated line items without talking to Congress first, just to see if it would if it would fly. Sure. Well, guess what? It didn't fly, and Congress broke them back apart. Well, I suspect probably contractors got a hold of that notion, and they probably had something to say in the other ear of Congress. That, that's that's entirely possible, too, and that's, that's another complaint I've heard from some outside experts about this process, is having those uh, individual discrete line items separated in the way that they are essentially means that a contractor's name is attached to each one of those line items without, you know, of of course, actually having them in black ink on there. That represents funding to probably one company because they're so discreet and so and and, and broken apart in in such a um, disparate way. But on the color of money, it does talk about that. Yeah. Yes. Again, separate issue. And that's not an area the commission's going into yet. They they did suggest that that's one area that they may go into in in, in the final report, which is not a surprise because one of the co-chairs of the commission is Ellen Lord, who kind of birthed some of the initial ideas around consolidating the colors of money in DOD, particularly around software development, which the, the department is now experimenting with. But they suggest, the commission suggests, one way they might go in this is you organize those colors of money based on the organization that's executing them. So, for example, a program executive office that's using almost all of its money to acquire things, ships, let's say, um, just have them use only procurement money. Everything that they do would be procurement money. They don't execute RDT and E money. They don't execute. Um, they don't execute any other color of money anymore. It would just be procurement. And then you would do similar things for other kinds of organizations. An R and D organization, for example, might only get RDT and E money, and, and and that that could go a long way toward solving the problem because there is an enormous amount of time spent in the department with lawyers figuring out what kind of money you can use for what thing, and sometimes the color of money that 
you need for a thing just isn't available in the budget in the year of execution, and you're out of luck until next year. All right. So lots of things that they can do long term, a number of suggestions short term. What happens next for this whole effort? And by the way, we should also note again, nowhere does it say let's get rid of PPBE. I I think that's really important, Tom. And and I think that will disappoint some of the people who think the system needs to be completely ripped out, root and branch. I don't think they're going there. We heard explicitly from the co-chairs, Ellen Lord and Bob Hale, uh, earlier this week at a media roundtable that they've really concluded that there are some very strong aspects to PPBE that should not go away. As Ellen Lord said, we are not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. That said, I think there are substantial reforms that we'll see in the final report, but it's not going to be a complete completely new system. As for what's next, as we said, they're out of listening mode at this point. Kind of the research phase is done. I think there's going to be some more engagement with stakeholders, as they say, to see whether some of the things that they have not yet recommended are actually going to make sense. Because in the end, I think they want an executable report. And again, it's got to be executable, not just by the department. It's fairly easy for Congress to order the department to do things. But in this case, Congress is going to have to make reforms itself At the same time, it's telling the department to do things. By the way, the ghost of Robert McNamara will not ever disappear from that building, will it? All right. Federal News Network's Jared Serbo, thanks so much. You bet. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.